Welcome, I'm Anthony Day. This is the Sustainable Futures Report and it's Friday the 18th of January 2019. Thanks for listening and thanks in particular to my patrons who support me in producing this weekly podcast on sustainability issues. This week's episode is devoted to an interview and thanks to my patrons' support I've been able to have the whole thing transcribed. You can read the full text on the blog at all the W's sustainablefutures.report. On the blog, you will also find the text of previous episodes with links to the sources of my stories. If you'd like to be a patron for as little as a dollar a month, you can find out all about it at patreon.com slash SFR. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash SFR. We live in the Anthropocene, the geological age marked by the influence of humanity on the planet. We've been having an effect for 50 or 60,000 years, ever since we started hunting and competing with other animals for food. Since the Industrial Revolution and the advent of high-speed travel, we've been influencing the planet far more rapidly. Is this a good thing, or are we on a path to total destruction? I've been talking to Chris Thomas, who is an ecologist and evolutionary biologist at the University of York and a fellow of the Royal Society. He's the author of Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction. In a wide-ranging discussion, he told me that humanity has never lived in harmony with nature. We should definitely do more to cut carbon emissions There's no golden age to go back to, and conservation is all too often linked to spurious baselines. He'd also like to introduce elephants and hippopotamuses to the university lake, but he doesn't think the vice-chancellor would allow it. There's a lot more. You presented at a conference towards the end of 2018, which was headlined The Anthropocene, and when you talk to people about that they often mention the sixth great extinction and they say well we're trashing the world we are causing extinctions every day if not every hour and it's a really really scary situation but having read your book you don't you seem far far more relaxed than that Uh, relaxed but not complacent Um, the we are causing a higher rate of extinction than is normal in the geological past. And if we were to maintain the current rates of extinction for another 10,000 years, let's say, to an order of magnitude, then we would indeed get up to the sorts of levels that have been seen on in, in the great mass extinctions of the past. But we're not about to hit one of the so-called big five and become the big six, not instantly at least, because those are defined by 75% or more of all species going extinct. And we're not there, and the rate of current extinction is taking us there on a timescale of millennia, not decades. Having said that, 
humans really started to cut into the world's wildlife, driving extinction of the biggest mammals in particular, of the order of mag order of 50,000 to 60,000 years ago. So let's say 50,000 years. And let's say we carry on doing all sorts of things for the next 50,000 years. Well, that would be a 100,000 year period. And if we maintain that rate of extinction throughout the, this period, we will indeed have generated a mass extinction in 100,000 years geologically is a vanishingly short period of time. So I'm not disagreeing with those who are talking about the, if you like, in the, the long-term unsustainability biologically of the extinction rate. We sure need to do something, lots of things about it. And I'm optimistic that we're actually going to. Good. But I'm also more optimistic about how successful many organisms are being at the same time. Of course, the other side of, from extinction is evolution, and you talk about the evolution of new species. You talk about it uh, in the context of migration, and yeah. you also mention uh, a number of conservation activities, and you say somewhere, why back a loser when you can actually support a winner? But I've got a number of examples which I'm concerned about, uh, which okay, I'd like great. to talk to you Fire about. away. <laughs> well, the one that uh, I am most interested in is the Asian hornet, because I'm a beekeeper. Yeah. And the Asian hornet's making its way uh, across the channel. We've only had about half a dozen so far. Mm, yeah. But they kill bees, and bees are important pollinators. So. Uh, yes, but they're not native species as such. The, and so. Um, bees are not native species. No, well, they're, 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 they're insect cows. I mean, that's fine. I'm all in favor of farming. We need to eat stuff. Right. And, um, but but the, there are very large numbers of wild bee species and wild uh, and hoverflies and beetles, for that matter, even butterflies and moths that are pollinating flowers. And the uh, Asian hornet, Hornet is disproportionately likes to raid honeybee nests, mm -hmm. but this is a very rich, concentrated resource yeah. which is managed by humans and makes it a sitting target. So, in this respect, it's no different from the insect pests that might attack uh, an agricultural crop or carry human diseases or whatever. There's there's a bunch of species out there that are harmful to the interests of humans. But it's not because it's ravaging biodiversity in some general sense. It's because it's keep competing with humans for a resource. Right, so are you saying that it's a lost cause, that we're going to have to say goodbye to honey? And, uh, no, 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 not at all. Um, but we're, we just have to manage it um, and work out how we're going to do it. Um, it seems pretty clear already that um, that it's so widely established, the Asian Hornet in Europe, that uh, there's a vanishingly low chance that we can exterminate it from mm. Europe. So mm. maybe we need to think about all the things that actually kill Asian Hornets. And we know that the, um, that the wild bee species, the Asian honeybees, etc., are somewhat more capable of defending themselves against um, hornet attacks. They've evolved alongside these Asian hornets for a long time.
and maybe we will need to look at some of the strategies being used by those bees and ask whether there are opportunities but we manage all sorts of I don't think it's because the Asian hornet particularly is not a native species which is the challenge here it's that we've got a system and as a pest from a human honey production perspective there's a pest which we now got to deal with which we didn't have to before but if we think of our crops we do all sorts of things to keep weeds out we do all sorts of things to stop insects feeding on them and transmitting diseases for our cows we inoculate them with this that and the other and then we check for TB and so on so this is a a something that's just going to have to be managed but we manage things that are deleterious to our interests in all of our other agricultural systems. Right so the other examples then which um, I have Japanese knotweed, Himalayan balsam, New Zealand flatworm, those things have to be managed in your view? Well sometimes we do sometimes we don't. Right. Um, so in if we take Japanese knotweed again that's something that irritates humans individually but it's not a threat to European British or European biodiversity as such it's actually a very localized um, plant and uh, if you look at randomly or more or less or systematically um, um, collected plant vegetation data from across the country it essentially doesn't feature at all. The problem is when you've got it growing underneath the foundations of your building you get very upset and actually the real problem with it is that it's an insurance blight um, and, and that's why it's become quite so, people have become quite so paranoid about it. So you're, uh, you're saying it's when it's... So, but, it's but it's directly doing something that we as humans don't like. It's not so a threat to basically. biological diversity. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, if you take Himalayan balsam, that's a much more widespread species. Um, it was native to the, um, to the Himalayas, of course, mm -hmm. um, and people love it there. It's a commonly photographed in a place called the Valley of the Flowers in the Himalayas. It's one of the most beautiful species in the Himalayas. People love it here. When you see um, costume dramas of the British countryside in the foreground, uh, in my perception of watching those films is the Himalayan balsam is pretty much the most commonly photographed plant in the foreground because okay. the people find it attractive. Yeah. And yourself included perhaps, the beekeepers yes. like it because well, we a do. certain type of year <laughs> it generates uh, nectar uh, at a time when other sources might be less available yeah. um, and here again it is a species that's not really it can change the local vegetation that's for sure um, but it's not a species that's likely to completely transform the entire vegetation of the country mm -hmm. because it's associated with very moist sorts of mm -hmm. habitats mm -hmm. and it really doesn't do well in dry lands and in fact many of the places that it's growing are places which would otherwise have brambles and uh, hogweed and nettles and so on moist nutrient rich environment um, if we so this I think is an example of a species that because it has arrived recently we have taken a cultural dislike to it rather than it being a genuine problem Imagine that we fast forward 10,000 years, 
which might be about the same time um, in the future as uh, bluebells arrived in the past. Mm -hmm. At that point, we might consider that it's one of the flowering glories of the British Isles, rather than a pest that we should frown upon. So there's nothing bad about Himalayan balsam for nature in Britain that I'm aware of as a whole. Mm -hmm. Of course, nature's slightly different with its present, but that doesn't make it worse. And that we are just deciding that because it's new, and actually because it is so colourful and it grows in large swathes along uh, the edges of some streams and so on, that because it's so conspicuous like that, we uh, have taken a particular dislike to it as its novelty. And and I think it's just it's just human culture. It's not it's not a worse situation than the one we had before. Right. Now, on the other side, you talk about the impact of humanity and you say that, in fact, it's led to a cornucopia of new habitats. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's challenging to know what we should do about them, of course. And, and once again, we come back to the issue of human cultural attitudes. But if we look across um, in Britain and Northern Europe as a whole, there are um, similar stories in increasingly from all other parts of the world, is that top of the list of the most endangered species in Britain, just by numbers, are um, animals, mainly insects, but also plants, associated with what were effectively medieval land use management. So the species rich hay meadows um, cut on a regular um, uh, uh, rotor and then grazed at other times of year. The coppiced woodlands that every five to 20 years or so, depending on how big you wanted your sticks to be for different purposes, people come in, they cut an area of woodland down, uh, let it re-sprout from the coppice stools that would regrow, then they come back and they cut it down again. And this generated warm, open conditions um, on the woodland floor and a number of our woodland flowers, uh, woodland butterflies, like some of the fritillaries, were reliant on those warm conditions. Um, and the reason that many of our species are declining today is because these sorts of medieval management are no longer economically viable or the most economic way of farming the land and producing, having a production system. Um, and of course the coppice woodland generated charcoal which before coal came into fashion this was the main, this was the fuel of industry if you like, uh, if you go back three, four hundred years. So species have become associated with humans, now we're doing something differently and those species that were very successful in the past are now becoming less so and, our, and conservation agencies are now putting lots of effort into carrying out those historical management activities even though they're not economic and government subsidizes farmers to um, for example put certain levels of grazing on species rich but low productivity grasslands to maintain the biodiversity associated with them but these are human uh, generated systems mm -hmm. 
Whereas today, where are we generating diversity? Well, actually often in our suburban gardens is an area of increasing biological diversity. And I just, I sort of rather fancy the idea, which is entirely my own, the machinations of my brain, if you like, the thought that in a few centuries time, uh, people are going to be slapping conservation orders on suburbia to maintain this modern uh, novel habitat. Yes, you, you say um, humanity has never lived in harmony with nature and it would be... I think did I say that? You did, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I think it would be, what's the word, uh, presumptuous to say that uh, evolution actually happens for the benefit of humanity. It almost certainly doesn't. It certainly doesn't, yeah. So, so perhaps I can sort of qualify that by... Uh, so when people are around even before you think of the earliest humans that you might think of as just like any other wild animal but once humans have become a quite actively hunting and bipedal animal on the plains as a as a predator they were consuming resources that would otherwise be available to other predators. They're likely to have started to affect the size of the populations of the things that they're preying on. So, and as human numbers have grown and eventually our technologies and farming, etc., have grown, we've just found new and more effective ways to obtain resources for ourselves, which would otherwise have uh, been available for nature. So uh, people debate quite what percentage of the total plant growth on the planet we take for human consumption, either directly via our food or indirectly via our livestock, and then wood and other fiber products and so on. But we are taking, we have over the last few centuries taken an increasing fraction of that primary production and as the human population continues to grow this century and per capita consumption continues to grow, which incidentally I think is a good thing because most of that consumption's growth is taking place in Africa and other poorer parts of the world where that's actually needed, um, that, um, that it is inevitable that there's less of this plant growth production available for all other animals and organisms to consume. So I don't, th we can think about how we manage and interact with the biological world in, in ways in which we don't result in grim futures for ourselves. But if we're going to carry on with our current numbers and consumption, we can't expect that fundamentally to be more nature because we're consuming so much of it. Yes, one of the most obvious collisions, I think, is the demand from palm oil against the survival of the orangutan. Um, there's another alarmist headline that uh, we come across from time to time where people say there are only 60 harvests left because we are depleting the topsoil irretrievably and uh, we won't be able to grow our cereal crops forever. What will we do? Um, I must say, here my perhaps my optimism comes in. Yeah. I tend to be rather unenthused by arguments that look at the current trend and they see an upward trend. 
and then they think about something that could go wrong and then forecast that the upward trend is going to turn into a collapse in the medium term future. I don't honestly believe this is going to happen because where we find ways, where we find that um, production might be stabilizing or declining, this then becomes a challenge for people to um, to increase it. And there's lots of there's lots of the world's land at the moment which is still farmed rather unproductively, where production could be increased in ways that um, by fertilizing, etc. Um, and that's challenging, particularly for uh, some of the additives to maintain this. Um, but but I think we will find a way. In fact, the increase in production per hectare that's required over the next 50 years is a long way short of what we've actually achieved in the last 50 years. It's not mm -hmm. an impossible mm -hmm. task, this. And the total amount of extra land that's come into cultivation over the last 50 years is actually really rather modest compared to this increased production per unit area. Um, so. I don't know any better than the next person what's going to happen in 50 to 60 years, but I don't assume it's going to be bad. And I would say that we already have quite a lot of technologies that might lead us to expect that we can maintain um, production into the longer term future. But we should take such warnings absolutely seriously so we make absolutely sure that it, they don't happen. Right, now if I'm right, there is a race between the breeding of resistant cereal crops yep. and pests and diseases, just as there is a race between the production of antibiotics yep. and the changes in uh, um, bacteria which yep. uh, infect us. Are we going to be able to win that race indefinitely? Well, I'm not going to address the human one. Um, we, I think we've been lucky so far and it is possible to conceive of a pathogen that could be seriously problematic for humans at the moment um, because we're so abundant and so mobile. Mm. Um, um, and medicine at the moment has too long a time lag usually between something new and having the solution for us to be able to deal effectively at the moment with some such surprise. In the agricultural system I don't think it's personally it's anything like such a problem, but we do need to maintain a sufficient um, range of suitable crops um, and production systems across the planet. Because what happens at the moment is that um, you get a new variety of a crop, let's say, <coughs> and um, and it has resistance to some particular insect or particular or pathogen. Now, on the whole, these have a shelf life of a sort of order of magnitude, a uh, decade or so. Some are, uh, some are um, broken into more rapidly by the pests and diseases, some last a bit longer. But the agricultural developers know this, and so they've got, they are trying to develop alternatives the entire time. And so, and we also have the different species of crops that we use. So. If we get a disaster, by and large, we have so far been in the position to replace it. And it is perfectly possible 
I'm not guaranteeing it will always happen, but it's perfectly possible to imagine keeping that going in terms of new development and new systems and increasing capacity to bring in new genes for resistant type by genetic modification and so on. So, so I think that that potential resilience is there. I think that is um, not the most likely scenario that because of pests and diseases we see a complete collapse of agricultural systems. Well that's good news, that's encouraging. Now we haven't mentioned climate change so far, but climate change affects us all and I think it affects biodiversity, but maybe not always in a negative way. Well it affects um, <coughs> yeah, the biological diversity of the planet hugely. Um, whenever the climate has changed in the past, such as over over the last million years, we've had seen this sort of crazy zigzag of climates between glacial conditions and warmer conditions similar to the present ones or similar to what we had uh, a century or two ago. Um, and whenever that has happened, species have moved around the planet's surface to new locations. And of course the ones that couldn't make it uh, have died out. Um, and so we're left with a set of species which are have survived up to the current time, which is of course always the case. Um, and now we're warming the climate again. But the last million years has on average been much colder than the, uh, in fact, the average of the last million years has been much colder than today. And in 50 years time, it's going to be warmer still. It's likely to be the warmest for three million years. And the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere is already thought to be higher than it's been for at least three million years. And um, by later in this century, we're heading towards the highest CO2 concentrations for 20 million years. So this is a major perturbation to the Earth's systems. Whenever this happens, there are changes in the locations where species reproduce successfully and changes to the geographic distributions of the death rate. And effectively, species do better in the places where their birth rate exceeds the death rate and die out in the places where the death rate exceeds the birth. And that is now happening. We see it all across the planet. Um, to my knowledge, it's sort of the order of three quarters of species that anyone's looked at. We can already detect changes in their geographic distributions, mostly moving towards the poles and to higher elevations. So this movement of species, in a sense, is is not to be stopped, it's not a sign that the world's biological systems have gone wrong, but it is a sign they're adjusting to the new system. But because we're going back to conditions that haven't been seen for such a very long time, we can't guarantee that all of the species are going to make it. And in fact, we've got a very, very long list of cold or at least cool adapted species, particularly those that are restricted to individual tropical mountains, which really have very little hope because they can only keep going uphill to cool into cooler environments for a certain length of time where they just run out of hill to move up yes. and there's no way that they can't go down to lower elevations cross the hot or dry lowlands and then go up another higher mountain somewhere else they are marooned and so climate change is going to generate large numbers of extinctions of particularly these localized types of species. But on the other hand, other species are moving and adjusting. And because the biological diversity per square kilometer or per hectare or whatever 
on the land tends to be highest in places that are warm and wet and despite droughts actually the average rainfall is going up as well that so on average across the land surface we can have this paradox of species dying out but if you go to any square kilometre of it you might still expect to find more species than there were in the past and so if we care about the species dying out which I certainly do then we should be really really concerned um, but if we're concerned about the operation of biological systems which might be more connected to the number of species per unit area then there might be less to fear although there are exceptions there are big big challenges we should definitely cut emissions immediately you start off uh, saying that you were relaxed but not complacent yeah so we must do things what should we individuals what can we do should we adopt an elephant or should we sponsor a tiger or what should we be doing well sitting here in the University of York I would be absolutely delighted if the university's management were to agree to have a colony of elephants and hippopotamus in the lake <laughs> I think that could be slightly uh, pushing it mm -hmm. um, so I suppose um, I'm going to answer with respect to nature conservation and biological diversity rather than the sort of general how do we as humans live on the planet which has okay. got so many dimensions and that is that we should get rid of the idea that nature was in some kind of perfect state before humans turned up and ruined it and that we should get rid of the idea that there's a sort of idealized, if you like, baseline nature that was correct that we need to return to in some way. Because all of the ecological processes on the earth, the birth and death of individuals, the movement of individuals, their interactions with one another, and all the evolutionary processes of some types of species being more successful than others, eventually the evolution of new species. Every single biological process that has generated the diversity we have today is a dynamic one. And therefore, trying to sort of um, save the world in aspic, if you like, is not the approach to conservation. And during the during a time of climate change it is particularly well if people try to do it they're going to fail and so we should be thinking about managing the dynamics of change translation movement rather than harking back to some perceived better past and that in my some circumstances will include things that are currently not high on the agenda or in most people's thinking such as with climate change most of the species that are going to go extinct from climate change in Europe are those that are restricted to uh, European mountain ranges particularly in southern Europe like the Sierra Nevada in southern Spain there's a bunch of water beetles that live at high elevation um, and butterflies as well there's no way they can spread northwards they're just getting pushed off the top of the mountain but what they need is moist uh, conditions they thrive on the snowmelt streams there but um, north parts of northwestern Europe are not expected to have such severe summer droughts in the 
future. So can we find a home for such species? Can we actually move some of these climate endangered species and bring them to the places they wouldn't otherwise be able to achieve, get to? Now, it's hard for an individual citizen to then to say, right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get some beetles and bring them to Britain. But I think there's an e effectively there's an engagement with the discussion in the conservation community of how do we support dynamism and dynamism that we accept and think of that's fine, that's nature responding and doing better than it would otherwise have done in the whole context of human change. Um, and eventually that conversation does turn into changes in policy and actions because if we want to save these species we're going to have to do something seriously different in the next 50 years to our approach of, of what's often termed habitat restoration which is our main uh, focus at the moment. So the Anthropocene has to quite a large extent been made by humans, I get the impression you're confident that humans will survive it. I have no confidence in the future that I can't see. <laughs> um, I'm confident that not all of the current indicators are negative. I am confident that um, the, there are many species that are associated with human environments. Britain's got about 2,000 non-native species that are established in the wild and although some of our native species uh, have declined uh, sometimes quite dramatically such as the red squirrel as a result of these arrivals, no native species has actually gone extinct from the whole of Britain as a result of the establishment of these extra 2,000 species. So we're looking at them as a negative thing, but from some perspectives, if you as a biologist, you step back and in a thoroughly heartless way of a scientist, you say, are there now more species in Britain than there were or fewer? The answer is more. And, and so it then is, as I said earlier, is then often a cultural issue as to whether we are accepting of this new situation. Um, yes, I, I just feel that we what we do is we often measure the change in relation to these past baselines. And because the future always departs from the past, we therefore conclude that everything is getting worse. When in fact what change should not and uh, deterioration of a system should not be synonymized. And I look at it this way as a, as a sort of biologist that thinking about dynamic systems is that if we use a baseline in our environmental thinking and conservation, every ecological and evolutionary change that preceded that, including the arrival of new species, has, is deemed to be good because it contributed to the state of the world at the time of the baseline. But every change to the system subsequent to that, changes in relative abundances of different species, the disappearance of some, the arrival of new species, even if it's more than disappeared, every one of those changes after the baseline is deemed to be a departure from it and therefore bad. And in a dynamic world, that simply doesn't make a sensible way of formulating our approach to 
living in the long term sustainability sustainably um, in this dynamic environment we inhabit. There's one thing that I think is a bit left field, um, which I didn't put in, which is, is modern medicine frustrating natural selection? Because we are preserving... Yes. <laughs> a bloody good thing too, excuse my language. Um, because otherwise, otherwise we, without modern medicine, human population size would be considerably lower than it is now. Yes. And of course, modern sanitation is even more important. Um, and it is, we are in a race. My perception is that in 100 years time, maybe even in 40, 50 years time, that the rate that when a new pathogen manages to colonize, colonize humans from another species of animal, let's say, as, um, or when an existing disease of humans evolves a new form, that at the moment it tends to take us anything from months to years or uh, even a decade or more if we think um, before we have effective responses to it. It took a long time to sort out HIV for example, not that it's fully sorted out but at least there are uh, halfway reasonable approaches to the challenge at the moment. So at the moment we have time delays that are measured in months, usually at the shortish through to years and even on occasion a decade or more from a serious new pathogen outbreak to us having some adequate response to it that is a genuine medical response. Given how many humans there are at the moment and our protoplasm is a very attractive resource, let's say, then if we were to get a pathogen with the transmissibility of Ebola but the, uh, the biological response of HIV let's say so that the individuals didn't immediately die. Ebola doesn't work effectively as a disease in humans at the moment because it burns itself out too fast. HIV doesn't but burn slow an effective disease in a way but it's but it's actually not very good at being transmitted so measles for example for every child who gets measles if there are other susceptibles in the population on average about 14 others catch the disease as a result of it whereas with many of these novel diseases for each person with the disease barely more than one new person catches it but if you could imagine we got one of these diseases that our bodies can't cope with like HIV or Ebola and it had the transmissibility of measles then we would really be in a challenging global situation at the moment but if we fast forward medicine for 50 to 100 years we can potentially reduce that response time greatly and so it could be argued and I have no idea whether this is the case it's just my thoughts that could be argued that we're in a particularly vulnerable place right at the moment from the point of view of medicine um, because we could have a huge disease outbreak it would spread around the world almost instantaneously given human transport and we're not fast enough at responding but once we can respond faster then that window of risk if you like might pass. 
Chris, thank you very much for talking to the Sustainable Futures Report. You're very welcome. Thank you. Chris Thomas of the University of York, and his book is Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction, and it's published by Penguin. That's it for this week. There are many stories vying for inclusion next time, and I must admit to being slightly distracted by current UK politics at the moment. The greatest constitutional crisis of our time has that effect. I'm working on ideas which you suggested before Christmas, and I'm looking to commission research on some of them. I can do this thanks to the support of my patrons, so thanks for that. And that's it. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. There'll be another one next week. Thank you.